0: Hello, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, welcome to the launch of our 2023-24 Transition Report. Transitions, big and small. The event is organised by the Office of the Chief Economist here at the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. And my name is Jonathan Charles, and as some of you may know, I'm the chair of the EBRD Alumni Association. Good to see uh, plenty of alumni here today. Uh, Let's dive right in. So the summer of 2023 was the hottest ever recorded. In September, the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, issued this stark warning. He said, our planet has just endured a season of simmering, the hottest summer on record, climate breakdown has begun. Green is now no longer a choice, it's a necessity. The global shift towards a low carbon economy will leave no area of economic and social life untouched. From global supply chains to national economies to individual families, we're all affected. From how we build our houses to the way that we work. As we adjust to these changes, such as the shift to sustainable economy or disruption of global supply chains impact All these changes impact small transitions, career moves, changes in physical and mental health, or the refurbishment of housing. At the heart of this new transition report is unique data gathered in our fourth Life in Transition survey, documenting such transitions at the level of individuals and communities, each playing a unique role in shaping the economic narrative of today. And that is what we are going to be discussing over the next hour and a half or so. But first of all, let's start with the EBRD president, Odile Renaud Basso. She's in Turkey today, but she will share her thoughts now by video on this fascinating report.
1: Good afternoon. I am very sorry that I cannot be with you today, as I am on the roads in our regions. But even from a distance, I want to welcome you all in this key event in the EBRD calendar. The latest thinking of the Office of the Chief Economist on the regions where we invest is always worth waiting for. And this year's transition report tackles a subject of enormous significance for us all. 2023 is on course to be the hottest year on record. As we prepare to discuss how to accelerate the shift to green at COP28, new ideas for the debate could not be more timely. This report has very rich data from the new Life in Transition survey on how the green transition impacts lives, jobs and well-being. It also makes the point that the green transition will only succeed if we pay proper attention to people and their needs and welfare. At a more macro level, the report also focuses on access to critical raw materials. In an age of heightened geopolitical tensions, their global supply is under threat, which is a significant challenge to the green transition in itself. These are the big and small transitions that our panel will discuss today. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much indeed, Odile, and some very important points there. And now let's get into the real detail of this report. Beata, our Chief Economist.
2: Well, good afternoon. It's a great pleasure to present to you our latest transition report. In my short presentation, I am not going to do justice to the richness of its content, but I'm hoping that the points I highlight will get you intrigued, interested, and will encourage you to read the report, or at least parts of it. The report is about the interplay of transitions, big and small transitions being the net zero pathway which is resulting in a scramble for critical raw materials and this is happening against the backdrop of geopolitical tensions and reshaping of global supply chains. These big transitions, global aggregate transitions, have implications for people's lives, for small transitions at the level of individuals, as they may necessitate job changes, they may necessitate career changes, or even changing of sector of employment as the structure of the industry, as the structure of the economy is adjusting. And of course these small transitions then translate into people's well-being, their mental, physical health, as well as their life satisfaction. So starting with the green transition and the scramble for critical raw materials. Green and digital technologies require significant, large inputs of minerals and metals. Um, If you look at this chart, you will see that producing an electric car requires six times as many metal inputs as producing a conventional car. Um, Graphite is one of those minerals that are needed. If you look at what's needed to produce offshore wind power, again, we need six times as many critical minerals as what's needed for a conventional power plant. Rare earth, some of those Magnets, very powerful magnets, are one of the inputs that are needed. Production of those critical raw materials is highly concentrated. You see that 60% of graphite production is currently taking place of China. Next to it, you see rare earth, again, almost two-thirds of global production taking place in China. What's special about graphite is the fact that a couple of weeks ago we saw the announcement about China introducing exports restrictions on graphite. You see also germanium and gallium. These are two critical raw materials on which there have been restrictions, um, export restrictions for quite a while. And again, these are two components, two materials 90% of whose production is located in China. Geopolitical tensions are leading to concerns about security of supply of those critical raw materials. In many quarters, the possibility of fragmentation of the world splitting into two blocks is not viewed as remote or unlikely. So in the report, we asked a hypothetical question. What would happen if the bl- world split into two blocks, the Western block and the other block? Where would the reserves of those raw materials, those critical raw materials located? We defined the Western bloc as the Western countries plus other economies that voted in a similar way at the UN assembly between 2014 and 2021. That's a standard way in political science of um, finding countries that are aligned politically. And again, you see graphite. The Western bloc holds only a minority of global reserves. Similarly for rare earth, where the situation is is even more acute. So as the political tensions are mounting, may become an issue how to get access to those raw materials. And this possibility is not so remote, given that currently 30% of critical products are under export restrictions. 10 years ago, it was just 3%. An export restriction can be introduced at the stroke of a pen, while starting setting up a mine, getting it to be operational, and producing sufficient amount of minerals may take many years. Therefore, this retreat from globalization that we are seeing as politics rather than economics is driving trade policy may actually jeopardize supply of critical raw materials and therefore the success of green transition. Now, what does this scramble for raw materials and green transition mean for our regions? It creates some opportunities. Some of our countries have significant deposits of critical raw materials. That's true of Turkey, Morocco, Central Asian countries, um, even Poland. But of course, developing these reserves um, is something that may take a while, but given the expected increase in the demand for critical raw materials, this is an opportunity for those countries. Many of our countries, or some of our countries, already have comparative advantage in supplying products that are needed For green transition. As you see on this graph, Poland, Czech Republic, Hungary, or Slovakia are already supplying fuel cells. Turkey is supplying inputs into generation of solar energy. But even countries that are not yet very active in exporting this type of products may stand a chance to benefit from green transition because they are already producing goods and exporting goods that are quite similar to the goods that are required for green transition. Investment promotion agencies already spotted this opportunity. They are actively trying to attract FDI into green sectors. Here you see the results of a survey of investment promotion agencies we conducted for this report. And you see that almost all of our countries of operations are keen on this type of FDI inflows. They also see diversification of supply chains as an opportunity to bring additional business to their economies. Now, let's move on to small transitions. Moving to net zero will require big structural changes in the economies. That means that some sectors will be shrinking, other sectors will be expanding. Firms that will not be able to adjust will become smaller. Firms that will take green transition seriously will expand. And that will mean that people will have to change jobs, or maybe even careers, or maybe even sectors of employment. We looked at what has been happening to demand for green skills. We analyzed data from LinkedIn. We looked at positions that are advertised on LinkedIn. These positions are somewhat special. These are typically positions for highly skilled people. And we looked at the share of positions offered that required green skills. And this blue line, which shows um, the average for advanced countries, so Germany, Italy, UK, and the US, shows that demand for green skills has doubled over the last five years. In our countries of operations, that's the orange line, so far we haven't seen comparable rise in demand for green skills. But more, of course, is to come in the future. Then we looked back at more comprehensive data. These are labor force surveys. And we looked at 20 years of data from 1998 to 2019. And we looked at people who were employed in a brown sector. So in a sector that's likely to shrink in the future. And then we asked, where did people go a year later. So these were people who were leaving their job in the brown sector. And then we looked at where did they transition to. We see that almost half of these people became unemployed. 20% retired. But many people, 16%, moved to green sectors. And 17% moved to other sectors. So, So In a sense, the movement from brown jobs to green jobs versus other brown jobs was very similar. And that little purple triangle, that little purple rectangle you see at the bottom right-hand side corner, these are the people who went into retraining. Now, if I were to show you a similar chart for advanced economies, you would see many more people moving into green sectors and many more people doing Retraining. Changes will be required not only when it comes to the structure of the economy at the sector level. These changes will also matter for regions. And they are likely to upend local markets in many regions. You see on this map some of our countries of operations and each dot is a locality where 10 or 20% of jobs are in highly polluting industries. So by highly polluting, I mean um, 40% of industries in terms of emissions. Um, And you see that Czech Republic, Slovakia, parts of Hungary, southern Poland, parts of Turkey have many of those dots suggesting that these are the local labor markets that will be uh, significantly affected by green transition. Now, what do people think about all of this? Our Life in Transition survey allowed us to ask people for their views on green transition. So the good news is that people, three quarters of respondents in our countries of operations recognize climate change. Yet, skeptics constitute 25%. Let me this, unpack this for you. So in the, this is the same chart, just bigger for those of you sitting in the back rows. We ask people, do you believe that climate change will seriously affect you? And children of, of today, 75% of respondents on average in all of our regions of operations said yes climate change will have a serious impact on today's children. And in every country, except for Lithuania, this was true of the statement, um, got a positive reply from more than half of the respondents. So that means people are acknowledging climate change. It's also striking that the question about the impact on today's young generation um, resulted in greater share of positive response. That shows that people believe that climate change is still some time away from us. So the serious implications of that. Then we ask people about general concerns about environment, air pollution, loss of biodiversity, rising temperatures. And you see that people recognize what is happening. They acknowledge what is happening. The picture looks quite different when we ask people whether they are willing to act. We said, should we be prioritizing environment over jobs? Should, would you be willing to pay more taxes uh, to fight global warming? And here, the picture is very different. In most countries, less than half of the people are willing to prioritize environmental concerns, or fighting climate change over economic concerns. And our countries are actually not that different from Germany, which is hiding there towards the right-hand side end of of the chart, actually. Now, we took the data, these responses, at the level of individuals, and then we grouped our respondents into three categories. Supporters, so these are people who say, yes, climate change is real and I am willing to act. I'm willing to pay more taxes. Skeptics, these are the, the red bars. People who actually do not acknowledge that climate change is real or is seriously going to affect them. And then the disengaged group. These are the people who believe Climate change is something that matters, something that is happening, but they are not willing to pay for that. 29% of people, in, when you do the average for all of our regions of operations, are disengaged. But in some countries, it's up to 45%. So now, look at those lines. You see that, yes, there are quite a few countries where supporters of net zero of, of green transition are the majority. But there are also many countries where the skeptics and the disengaged form a majority. And we will not make progress in green transition unless we manage to convince those people and take them with us as we go through the process. Now, we may be in a good place to convince people because actually, across our countries of operations, people have become more satisfied with life. Until 2016, our countries of operations had a happiness deficit. Even if you took into account GDP per capita of their country or household income or age or education, people in post-communist countries tended to be less happy than people in other parts of the world that happiness gap disappeared. And you see that over time, people have found more satisfaction in their life. Part of it is increase in economic prosperity. Part of this is moving to higher skilled jobs. Telecommuting is another issue that makes people happier. And of course, you probably, we probably find that people are not as happy as they would have been had the world been in a better place in terms of peace. These are results that were taken, survey was done last year. But this chart also contains a warning. If you look at Germany towards the right hand side of the chart or Lithuania, these are two countries where the impact of energy prices has been felt quite heavily, and these are two countries where the level of life satisfaction has dropped relative to a few years ago. And that's a warning saying that we need to have the right narrative when we talk about green transition to get people to accept some of the costs associated with it. Another reason why people have registered higher wealth Uh, life satisfaction is improvement in health. Here, you see the comparison in the average self-reported health status between 2006 and 2022. You see that in many countries, people feel much healthier than before. And in the... Of course, there are differences between countries. In this slide, the diamonds show the average self reported health status for G7 countries and you see that there's a little bit of drop off with age but it's actually not much our countries are different the dark blue bars these are the EBRD EU member states there those countries are perceive themselves individuals that perceive themselves as equally healthy as their counterparts in G7 economies. There is a bit of a difference for individuals 70 years of age or older. But if you look at the lighter brew bars, these are our other uh, regions of operations, the drop off with age is much bigger, meaning that as people get older, they feel much less healthy. in comparison to younger cohorts, but also in comparison to their peers in G7 countries. And SEMET, Southern Eastern Mediterranean, this is the region where this line is the steepest. So in summary, the good news is that people's lives are getting happier, they are getting more prosperous and healthier, and this happiness deficit is gone. The bad news is that three-quarters of citizens may be concerned about the environment and climate change, but not many yet are prepared to pay for environmental policies. So success of green transition will depend on winning the hearts and minds of those skeptics and those who are disengaged. Because if there is one lesson that we learned over 30 years of transition, it is that reforms will not last without a broad-based support. Thank you.
0: Beata, thank you very much indeed. A fascinating report. I mean, my jaw dropped over those Germany figures, by the way. I find some of them quite quite staggering, Uh, truly unique data there. Uh, We are going to discuss all of that. Let me introduce our fantastic panel and ask them to come up and take their seats. Uh, First of all, we have Charlotte Shelbach, who is head of internal audit at Volvo Cars. Uh, Charlotte, if I could ask you to take a seat. Uh, And then Sandra Bates, specialist on mining and clean energy with executive and non-executive director experience. Hello, Sandra. Uh, And Mark Keese, uh, head of the skills and employment division at OECD. And of course, Beata is here. Our chief economist, Beata Uvočić, uh, Professor Beata Uvočić. So. A few housekeeping tips before we uh, carry on. Those of you in the audience with us today, you can ask your questions a little later on by raising your hand at the end of our discussion. I'll I'll tell you when that uh, time is approaching, so think about your questions on what we're hearing. Uh, The event is also being streamed live on ebrd.com and YouTube and LinkedIn, so for those of you watching online, please post your questions in the comments below the video, and I'll use them towards the end of our broadcast. If you see me looking at my phone, I'm uh, not being rude, it's because they're sending me the questions on there. Uh, Let me turn to our distinguished guests and uh, give them the floor to reflect on the main themes of the transition report, uh, how you see things from your own perspective, respective perspectives, the themes and issues raised in the report affecting your industry or field of work. Uh, Charlotte, let's start with you and your reaction to what we've heard.
3: Excited to be here to begin with. Uh, I thought I'd give you a little bit of insight what it's like within a company in the automotive industry right now, uh, Volvo Cars in specific, because that's where I am. And uh, I have to say, it's interesting times, to say the least. And uh, it's, uh, th- you could say that the green transition has, is really in progress. And uh, you can see that by all of the electric vehicles you see on the road. And that's how we show a visible evidence from uh, the automotive industry, I would say. Uh, As a car company, we have promised by 2030 that we will only sell electric vehicles. And uh, by 2040, we will be a climate neutral operations in all aspects. (laughs) Uh, That itself is big challenges. And we have actually divested our internal combustion engine operations. And the last diesel uh, car produced by Volvo Cars will be sold in uh, the beginning uh, of next year. So there is no way turning back, I have to say. Uh, In addition to to the green transition and and the challenges there, we have added industry-specific challenges on top of that. Uh, We have the digital car, we have the digital operations, we have the autonomous drive, we have uh, also the commercials transformation going direct to sales. So that is on top of everything that we do. And uh, that, of course, creates work uh, employment, uh, but it's also challenging. Uh, it is also challenging with all the uh, requirements that we have as a company right now, where we have requirements on, tra- on transparency from a sustainable st- sustainability point of view, but also from a business ethics point of view, and uh, also we have, uh, of course, the uh, the critical parts of the supply chain where we see disruptions from uh, supply shortages, but also due to geopolitics. So in this, it's really interesting times. I have to say, uh, from an internal audit perspective, this is this is. You could say that it's like we cannot use the normal methods and. Uh, Before we could use, let's say, the the rear view mirror and see what has happened historically, that's not working anymore. We have to sit next to the operations, looking through the windscreen and see what's happening and assess the risks together with those and going basically 100 kilometers per hour or it feels like even faster sometimes. Uh, And uh, luckily we have, as an internal audit team, looked at sustainability for seven or eight years already, so we have a good base at least. But we look at, for example, the battery supply chain from the beginning to the end. Uh, We look at how we handle the batteries from a health and safety point of view. Uh, We look at how we calculate and how we take into account CO2 effects in our decisions regarding investments and also in projects. Uh, we also look at how we cascade targets uh, regarding, for example, uh, recycled materials like plastics or aluminium. aluminium. And uh, it's, it's a full range of uh, things that we have to keep track on. And also, of course, that, that the normal internal audit job is to look at the, the the reporting is correct and the sustainability reporting is is good and also that we have the skills necessary to fit for the future and be able to to keep up with the challenges so from that perspective it's it's interesting times as i said uh, but it's uh it requires a lot from us i have to say and there's no turning back and the green transition actually affects everything we do in the company it's from what we engineer, where we produce, what we source and where we su- source, and also how we, best do, how we make the best use of electricity and energy and also the used materials. But uh, the green transition is of course here and we are committed as a company, definitely. Uh, there are big challenges going ahead and I think the report reflects and I can recognize all of those mm-hmm. challenges at least in the, in this report.
0: Thank you Charlotte. yeah, I was just uh, struck by that thing you said that you know the rearview mirror is not much good anymore that uh, history is no longer much of a reliable guide for the future which uh, you know we've all relied on history in our decision making uh, quite often but uh, that that's uh, really interesting. Thank you very much indeed Sandra, let me turn to you and your thoughts.
4: Uh, sure. Uh, I'm coming at this from a, a very, very different angle. Um, so I'm a non-exec director on the board of a company, Adriatic Metals, which is one of the first new mining projects in Bosnia and Herzegovina uh, for decades. And I also recognise all of those challenges that that you've just you've just seen on the screen. Um, you know, the the transition. I mean. The fact that we are confined to where these deposits are is sort of the first challenge for the mining industry. Um, There can be a lot more investment across the regions that are relevant to the EBRD, I think, because there for sure are deposits there that have been sitting there for a long time in the ground and they're just uneconomic. So that's, that's sort of the magic word here. It's not just the fact that you've got a deposit, you need to have everything else lined up to to even hope to get there in that 10 to 15 year period. And you you can sort of see that it is a scramble for critical metals, there's no doubt about that. And finally, there's that realization across the general public um, and governments alike, uh, and and even people, you know, in their own households understand that, you know, if it's not grown, it's mined. And that's a key message that I don't think the industry has really been very good at getting across to date. But recognising we have that challenge, then we've got to look at all the other building blocks before you even get started, um, you know, in a country, looking at the regulations um, and looking at the economics of it. So, you know, we are not producing enough mining engineers. That the you know mining engineering as a degree has reduced in this country and, and almost been eliminated entirely, or it's one school. Mm. We've got the same problem in Canada, we've got the same problem in Australia. Um, you know, these key mining jurisdictions that have that history. Um, so there are, you know, and that, that's just from the sort of from a company perspective, the key roles you need to fill. Then you look at the labour markets in each jurisdiction. And that certainly for Adriatic has been one of our key challenges, um, as important as the regulatory side, the permitting side, and and the trade and geopolitical elements as well. So it's you know, attracting talent even to be in the region to then train them up. So, you know, we we are, much like Volvo, but in a very different way, hit from all angles by what's what's going on uh, in the world. And the additional challenge is, we don't know if there's going to be a market for this particular mineral. Some you can guess, right? And that's where you'll see the capital going. Um, the big boys are in you know, copper in a big way, lithium is hot, nickel is there. But for lots of these other elements, it's very, very difficult to justify, You know, in addition to getting the economics, to justify to people that, yes, we need to be in this region, yes, we need to be doing this, and at the end of it, you're going to have an off-taker ready to take your product at a price that makes sense. So one of the key risks I see is having that regulatory base sound and efficiently working so that people can then make what is a really long-term investment decision. I mean, we call it a scramble, and I'm afraid that will attract a gold rush mentality in our industry. We've always been boom or bust. Um, there's still gold bugs out there. Yes, gold, gold is you know, an element useful for the transition, but uh, principally not. And yet that's where you see the capital flows. Uh, and lithium, and you'll see the wrong types of investors rushing in for a short-term gain. And that's where we need to get a broader investment base and, and institutions like the EBRD supporting the projects that, that we will need you know, for the transition.
0: Thank you very much indeed, Sandra. Uh, Mark, let me turn to you. At the OECD, you spend a, a lot of time poring over data. What do you make of all of this?
5: Well, I have to say it was really an excellent report. and full of uh, information that I think will be extremely useful for the countries uh, uh, that the EBRD is working with, but also for other countries as well. And so really, congratulations to the the team that produced that report. I've produced or been sort of the editor for many uh, OECD employment uh, outlooks, and I know the challenges in collecting that data Mm for sort of 38 countries and trying to make it sort of readable and understandable for people so really just wanted to <laughs> say congratulations for that. I'm going to focus mainly on chapter 1 on happiness, health and good jobs and on chapter 3 on labor markets in the green economy reflects my background as a labor market economist. Now Beata already pointed to the the results of the Life in Transition Survey, and I thought that was fascinating to see how sort of life satisfaction has really risen in these countries, and I think that does reflect good progress in terms of economic and uh, social developments. One thing I was missing, though, I thought it would be interesting to actually correlate it with um, your final chapter on structural adjustments, and you have all of these indicators of uh, transition qualities or something, assessment of transition qualities, would have been interesting just to see also how do they correlate with these increases in in life satisfaction, so so carrying out reforms. sort of promoting and facilitating transitions, better governance, et cetera, does that also show up uh, and partly explain or at least correlate with this increase in in life satisfaction? However, again, I think you also pointed, Beata, to um, some of the challenges. What we see is that health declines very steeply with age and much more steeply uh, in the EBRD countries on average than in, say, more advanced economies. And we see that there's still sort of a high and unequal uh, incidence of, of uh, poor mental health. On the health side, I think, of course, the challenge is to make our health systems more effective at dealing with illness and poor health. But we need to do much more, go beyond that, and of course have a preventative uh, approach and start at much earlier ages in influencing sort of healthy lifestyles, but of course, improving sort of occupational uh, safety and health at work. And I think that's a key message that we've got to say, particularly to EBRD countries, but to other countries as well. <coughs> In terms of treating mental health illness, I think this is something sort of very difficult and that, you know, it's a challenge actually for all countries. It's actually a challenge where you know, OECD countries could do a lot more and that's why we put forward this uh, OECD sort of recommendation on mental health and work. And I think there, the sort of key message is we really need an integrated policy approach when we look at issues of mental health at the intersection of both education and uh, work. Turning to sort of labor markets and the green economy again, I mean, a fantastic chapter, that one. Um, marshalling all of this different uh, information. And I think some of the key findings you've already highlighted, Beato. The first one is that these jobs are actually sort of quite going to be male dominated. It's interesting, brown jobs were male dominated, but the green jobs also are going to be uh, male dominated unless we change, um, do further work on trying to reduce uh, occupational segregation. But the green transition itself is not going to help us uh, tackle that. So we need to look at the policies to why do we get this segregation and of course it starts quite early even in school we have to change uh, young women's aspirations and young men's aspirations about what they want to do when they get older also the findings point to sort of greener jobs being slightly more high skilled on average uh, than other jobs we find that in some of our uh, work at the OECD And that is sort of combined with the fact green innovation may be putting at risk the jobs of low-skilled people in in that sector, even if green innovation uh, in general does not seem to be as as labour displacing uh, as some other technologies. And I think this is a concern. We really need to focus on sort of what can we do for low-skilled people in particular, because we know that combined with the digital and AI revolutions, we are really shifting uh, labor markets, we're tilting labor market s- success away from the l- low skilled and to some extent even the mid skilled. So again, we need to do more to focus on them. Now, I think against that, there, the good news is at least the green transition doesn't seem to be age biased. <coughs> so it seems that across the board, across the age spectrum, we see that people can actually get into these uh, jobs. And I think that's very important in the context of population uh, aging. However, again, and this is something Beata really pointed out very strongly, we see that transitions from brown jobs to green jobs are actually very infrequent, and even more infrequent in in EBRD countries than than other countries. I think this highlights that we shouldn't be thinking about this one-for-one transfer, that somehow we've got to take people in brown sectors and transfer them into the green sectors. We know that just won't work, that they don't have the right skills. Pay is a lot lower uh, than than in their former jobs. So we need to look at uh, more generally how can we help them to transit into grey Uh, jobs for example not just focus on uh, trying to get them into green jobs and similarly we know that a lot of the green jobs will not come from the brown jobs they'll come from people entering from the the grey sector so again we've got to facilitate uh, this transition uh, across all three sectors and within those sectors Mm -hmm. I think the policy conclusions of that chapter on on um, the labor markets and the green economy have you know really spot-on uh, clearly it, it uh, again resonates with what my colleagues were saying that you know skills and doing more to improve training and the skills of people is, is the key to these transitions but I think we shouldn't just be looking at, at the content of training programs we've got to look at why do people not take up these training programs and we see that again in brown people in brown sectors they don't engage very much in training even though their jobs are at risk And I think a key to that is looking at the barriers to training. And so we have to identify those barriers, which primarily tend to be sort of time and financial constraints. And so again, we need to look at the policies that can help people overcome those time constraints. These consist of making uh, training shorter, um, use of micro-credentials. We see that countries like Spain and Croatia are introducing these micro-credentials, and uh, things like individual learning accounts to help people with the financial constraints. So again, if we don't tackle those barriers to training, we won't uh, have people engaging enough in training. And then adding to that, of course, is we need better career advice for adults. Career advice for adults has been the poor cousin of career advice for young people. Many countries give young people excellent career advice, but even in OECD countries, I think we found that in a recent survey, only eight out of 26 uh, OECD countries that responded to our survey actually provide good career advice, and particularly with a focus on um, the green jobs that, that are emerging. So let me just stop there and just say overall again, my congratulations to uh, Beata and her team for an, a really excellent report, thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Mark, and uh, yeah, I, w- I was taken by those life satisfaction figures as well because I remember the very first uh, life in transition survey I worked on here at the UBRD when I worked here was the 2010 survey. And there, of course, we've just been through the economic crisis. It was hardly surprising that life satisfaction was pretty poor in many EBRD countries You know, But we have just been through another crisis the last couple of years, the economic dislocation of the pandemic and all the various other things that are going on. And yet still actually we see rising uh, satisfaction. I found that very interesting as a juxtaposition with the 2010 experience. Beate, you've had a lot of time to look through all of this. What about your thoughts?
2: So, so let me continue. So on some of the theme that Mark raised. So who are the skeptics and the disengaged? Are these people rational? Well, actually they, they may be rational. These are people who tend not to have a university degree. These are people who are in the bottom half of the income distribution. So these are people for whom retraining may be more of a challenge, people who are less well positioned to withstand shocks because they probably have less of savings. And actually, you know, we were uh, looking at savings in one of our recent regional economic prospects report. That The buffers in our countries tend to be much smaller than in advanced economies. Women tend to be among um, the disengaged and skeptics. And, and Mark mentioned that brown jobs favored men and green jobs may be doing the same. And also, if men are displaced from brown jobs, they may be pushing out women out of other parts of, mm. of the labor markets. Um, that's, that's a concern. So uh, these skeptics and these disengage are rational. We show in the report that there is a premium, a green premium, green jobs pay more, it's 4% for less skilled workers. But is 4% increase in earnings enough to justify the pain of the transition path? Um, you know, economists are guilty of jumping from one equilibrium to another, ignoring what's happening in between. And in between, there is a lot of pain and effort. Now, Mark mentioned barriers to mobility. Um, in our what, a report two years ago, we showed poor ICT skills among older workers um, in our countries of operations. While young people are equally ITC, ICT savvy than their counterparts in G7 countries, workers 50 years of age plus actually are lacking those skills. And you see that they are, for instance, much less likely to shop online um, than their peers in other countries. So finally, um, when it comes to labor market policies, I think the experience shows that we should avoid quick fixes, putting people, displaced people into short-term jobs, but rather, we need to help them develop a career and some sort of career progression in the new type of occupation. Thank you.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? Back to the old discussion about whether people have agency feel they have agency in their lives or non-agency and that then affects their their views on on many of these issues. Uh, Beato, thank you very much and thank you for those opening interventions from uh, from all of you. Uh, Let's go a little deeper into some of the themes that are emerging. Uh, We know the move to net zero is gonna require a readjustment uh, in terms of work, you know, we've seen it across the EBRD regions. I wonder about the big picture elsewhere, Mark, perhaps I can ask you, you know, how fast is that move from brown to green jobs happening and, and what are the key obstacles? You know, Because we can probably learn as well from what's happening elsewhere outside the EBRD region.
6: Well,
5: first of all, I think uh, there are actually sort of relatively few differences apart from degree between EBRD countries and, and say OECD countries more generally in terms of the challenges uh, faced by the green transition. I think we see across the board that, first of all, policies, there's. There seems to be sort of policy, some stasis in policies. We we see the challenge. The challenge seems to be getting more important about the urgency of tackling climate change, and our policies seem to be progressing at a snail's pace. And I think to some extent that's also the case uh, in terms of the transitions happening in the labor market. We do not see this rapid pickup um, in green jobs uh, over time. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's across the board. Nevertheless, uh, we see that it is important to facilitate these transi- transitions and to make them uh, as smooth as possible. We really need to reallocate people. So not just from green, uh, uh, jo- uh, brown jobs to green jobs, but a- across the board, we need this uh, reallocation. I think the other thing is we shouldn't be thinking of green, uh, the green transition as though somehow it's going to create this fountain uh, of jobs, so that it's a job creation machine, because we have to remember, we will be losing those brown jobs. So overall, the aggregate effects uh, on employment are going to be small, but that doesn't mean that there will be much larger effects within sectors and also within some regions and for certain types of workers. And that's what we have to sort of uh, focus uh, on now of course if we don't deal with these bottlenecks in terms of this reallocation across sectors the risk is not only that we will lose the hearts and minds of people that, that are affected by these by job loss in brown sectors if we don't help them move into other jobs quickly but we will actually even slow down the transition to a, green, uh, to a greener economy and greener societies and um, with the terrible impact that we'll have uh, on climate change. Now, of course, designing appropriate policies uh, will depend crucially on having good information. So where will what sort of skills will we need for the uh, automotive industry, uh, even for, in terms of mining? Uh, so more generally, what are the skills needed for sort of wind turbines for for installing solar panels, but all of the other ways that jobs will change in terms of becoming uh, greener. And here I think countries are sort of doing a a mixed job. We did a survey of five uh, countries in depth of how they're assessing and anticipating uh, changing skill requirements as a result of the green transition. And we also looked across uh, other uh, countries using the literature, and we find that there are different approaches. But nevertheless, a couple of key findings come up. We need to have much more sort of both quantitative and qualitative. So it's not just a matter of knowing which jobs, uh, how many more jobs uh, will there be for sort of uh, wind uh, farm engineers. We need to also look at the types of jobs and the skills required in those jobs. So that's, that's absolutely important. But I think a, f- a final finding that I'll mention is that we're doing better at collecting information, but we're still doing quite poorly in disseminating that information. So we'll have special institutes in some countries doing those analysis, some researchers doing that analysis, but we don't disseminate that more widely to all of the key stakeholders. So we need to do a better job not only improving our data collection on the job needs and the skill needs of those jobs, but disseminating that to the trade unions, the employers, and to the training institutes to inform their training courses and to people themselves to know more about where are the new job opportunities and where they are facing uh, the risk of job loss. So we've got to do a much better job on that. Otherwise, that information itself uh, would be of not much use.
0: Mark, thank you very much. So let me turn to you. I mean, how is the green transition going to affect uh, employment and supply chains in the automotive sector. It's, it's a particularly big issue for quite a few central European countries, EBRD countries of operation, Slovakia, Hungary, Poland, what can they expect?
3: Yeah, I think to begin with the, the effect on employees have already happened, at least in our company, where I spoke before about the, the diesel cars, for example, and the engineers working with that are now retrained or reskilled. Uh, we've had a two-year program where they learn new skills in electric motors, for example. So that has already happened. Uh, regarding the the region we talk about here, we have as we speak, or we are as we speak, uh, building a plant in uh, the Slovak Republic, uh, fully electric for cars, for co- of course, uh, which will uh, employ thousands of, of people. And as we have a strategy to produce where we sell and source where we produce, there will be employment opportunities in in sort of the area of the Slovak Republic and and surrounding countries, of course. Uh, Also, there are new new jobs, as I explained before, in in other areas like the software development and and other new areas in autonomous drive, which also requires skilled Uh, labor. So as an industry I'm not sure that we are shrinking but for sure there is a a change in what we need.
0: Okay Charlotte, uh, we may have time to examine some other issues around the automotive sector a little later on. Maybe we'll get some questions from the audience as well or online. Just a reminder in about 10 or 15 minutes time we'll be taking some audience questions. Uh, Let's have a look at some of the big transitions then. Uh, In the ongoing battle to reduce carbon emissions and mitigate the effects of climate change, access to metals and minerals has become a fundamental challenge. You mentioned that in your presentation, Biasa, and and this scramble for critical minerals of course comes at quite a tense time geopolitically. Uh, a lot of shifts going on there, trade policy increasingly being driven by geopolitics rather than economics. We've got a lot of changes in supply chains and people's how can I put it, comfort levels, I guess, with supply chains. Um, How are those tensions affecting global supply chains as you see it, Beata?
2: Well, so green transition is projected to increase the demand for those critical raw materials. Right. So copper demand will triple, demand for nickel will go up between four and 10 times. These are at least the the estimates I have seen. Um, And I think it is pretty clear that we are not quite on track to to meet that demand, and I think we'll hear more about that. Um, So we need the minerals, but at the same time we are very cautious when it comes to accepting the carbon footprint and the biosphere footprint associated with mining, right? And so, what I worry about is that the geopolitical tensions we are seeing may escalate. Right? We've seen US-China trade war. We've seen weakening of the WTO, of the global trading rules. And if there is nothing to constrain countries from uh, Introducing more export restrictions, we may see a domino effect, right? A tit for tat. Um, I was mentioning the export restrictions on germanium and gallium. Those are widely understood as being a response to the U.S. Chips Act that uh, aims that prohibits um, transfers of certain technology to China from companies that benefited from from US uh, subsidies. So I worry that the trade tensions may get out of hand and we may find ourselves in a situation where we don't quite want mining in our backyard because of the environmental footprint and um, we lost the supply from abroad.
0: So that could be, uh, yeah, that, that will make a transition very difficult. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, and, and make Frenchuring very difficult as well, of course, the other thing that we have going on. Uh, Sandra, let, let's stick with the question of critical raw materials. You know, we've, they're vital, obviously, for this transition, but very few countries are producers, as we saw, of some critical minerals. Is there an opportunity for some other economies, EBRD economies, to to make their mark in this? Or you know, it's a bit difficult, isn't it? If you don't have the minerals in the ground, it's quite difficult to get them out of the ground.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to note that they are certainly there. Um, it, you really have to take it mineral by mineral, metal by metal. Um, China are way way ahead of us. I mean, there's. I would almost just to put your very valid concern into perspective, Biata, that we are so far behind that almost anything we do is, is going to be a step forward. And I think that's probably, that's the perspective we need to hold when we're looking at this. So, you know, if, if China wants to create absolute turmoil, they can do that in a heartbeat. Um, so, we're, but that has been the case for a long time. They've been investing certainly heavily in Africa with, you know, a, a great deal of success. You've also got, you know, the Wagner group all over West Africa, um, which you know, it's a matter of choosing your poison. There's there's a, a lot that can go wrong if we don't get investment in mining, not just exploration and and production, but but also the processing. And the report touches on, you know, something that I'm quite aware of the, the rare earths processing. You know, it, it is going to generate NIMBYism because, you know, you, you literally have, you know, nuclear byproducts coming out of of that production. And we're all very happy to see that happen elsewhere. And so you, you now have, certainly in the UK, um, there are some lithium projects that are starting to get investment, which is brilliant, great to see. Um, but, but you know, that's been a 10 year project for, for colleagues of mine to, to to get that sort of notice. So it, it is all really slow, um, but I wouldn't underestimate the the value of the inputs from organizations like the EBRD, because the, the, the trade and the geopolitical issues is not something that a company can do terribly much about. You're an absolute pawn in the game. And, and being in a region like Bosnia, that is very obvious. And the, the different layers of councils and parliaments and you know, federal and state and cantonal, it, it is a minefield to even get your head around. But then you might have something as simple as a forestry permit hold you up. Mm. So the Critical Minerals Act and regulations that the, the EU are now you know, hopefully cantering towards um, bringing into law is, is a fantastic step forward. I worry about the speed of implementation and how, how easy that's going to be. You know, have, you, you, we all need the building blocks there, but then I think it's going to take organisations like the EBRD to, to partner up with companies Um, to implement that change on the ground. Because without it, um, it, it it's going to be really challenging ignoring the things that we can't control. Mm.
0: Sandra, thank you very much. Okay, well, I think it's that time. We'll take some audience questions. I know there's a huge number have come in online. I'd also like to offer our audience here the opportunity to ask some questions as well. So we'll mix and match. Uh, let's start with one in the audience here, if there is one. We have some microphones doing the round. Uh, okay, I'll, uh, lots of questions. I'll start uh, with the gentleman there because he had his hand up first. Okay.
7: Uh, <coughs> thank you very much indeed. Um, I'm Richard Strolford and I lead KPMG's uh, Infrastructure, Government, Healthcare and Transport Networks globally. Thank you for an absolutely fascinating presentation. Um, and I, I, I need to preface this by saying I'm a, a huge fan of electric vehicles and will do everything I can uh, in order to try and speed the transition to renewables generally. But there's, there's been something about the conversation around the critical materials that's been sort of bothering and niggling away at me which is, it seems all to be predicated on an assumption that we just continue to satisfy the insatiable demand and continue to extract for that demand. And I just wonder whether it, there's a, you know, any comments on the sort of broader conversation about demand management and recycling and trying to get some collaborative rather than competitive approach that means that we don't just continue to exploit the earth to death, but try to come up with a better answer in this transition thank you
0: all right thank you very much okay let's go to the specific before we broaden it out the specific Charlotte (laughs) (coughs) Uh,
3: I I agree that uh, we can't exploit the uh, the earth in in that way and I think for us recycling is going to be one answer at least and uh, that's that's what we are working on and also I think from a regional perspective, it's also on the EU agenda, etc. So, recycling for sure.
0: Okay, and the general, Beata. <clears throat>
3: well, you know, how can we reduce emissions? I mean, if you think
2: about total emissions, they are a function of the population size, of the GDP per capita, of the energy intensity of GDP, and emission intensity of energy, right? So, you know, you have these four levers Um, that you can change in order to reduce total emissions. Um, Population growth in advanced economies is slowing down. It is higher in the developing world, but their emissions tend to be lower. Um, So we tend to focus on energy intensity of GDP and CO2 content of, of energy right? The the message that you brought up is, well, reducing consumption is not exactly a popular message. So we are talking a bit more, perhaps, about shifting consumption towards services, towards less carbon-intensive or energy-intensive products. Um, But it's also a message that that is difficult to come across. Think about um, those you know, 45% of disengaged people, right? You know, is it, how to make, it's a challenge how to make that message palatable to win their hearts and minds.
0: Okay, and actually I'll follow that up with an online question, which is quite interesting. What is driving such a high level of skepticism of climate policies in countries such as Lithuania? How can we address this, Beata? Do we know, uh, you know, you've touched on it actually a couple of times, both in the presentation and just now, really
2: so you know if you look um, again carefully at the chart in the report and there are copies outside, I hope you take them home, you will see that for instance, some Central Asian countries um, are they acknowledge much more green transition okay. they are perhaps less skeptical and that may be because um, our more countries that are more advanced in transition, EU members, they already see policies that are being implemented. They see impact of these policies on perhaps on industries or on in terms of taxes on petrol and so on. Now Lithuania is a country that saw big increases in energy prices um, last winter as the cost of energy in Europe skyrocketed. That's because of the way pricing is done, of energy is done, and households felt those increases in global prices immediately. Inflation was on the order of you know 22%, and I think that brought the message Uh, if green transition will require higher energy, this is going to hit us hard. All
0: right, thank you. Uh, Let's go to the gentleman here in the audience who would like uh, to ask a question.
6: Thank you very much, uh, Bernard Snow, a former member of the board of directors at the EBRD. Uh, Coming back to the very interesting uh, chapter on the impact of geopolitical tensions on the global supply chain. Could you elaborate on a very interesting oh. box, I've seen there, box 2-4, on the impact on the invoicing currencies for international trade, where you see that in a number of countries are invoicing more, not no more in dollar or in euro, but in renminbi or in uh, domestic currencies. Does this mean that perhaps some of your countries of operations might be attracted by the BRICS or joining the BRICS. In fact, you have already Egypt which has joined the BRICS and as you know, one of the motors of, of the BRICS is reducing dependence on, on the dollar. That would be a um, significant, uh, um, challenging implication.
0: Yeah, Beata trying to recall box 2.4, no, I Beata. <laughs> I have good memory. So, <laughs>
2: so what we see is reversal of globalization. You don't see it in trade statistics yet, very visibly. You see changes in patterns, but you see it in policies. The US-China trade war, um, trade exports from China to the US seem to have peaked. There is more diversification as other Asian countries um, and Mexico are providing more. Then we see change in trade patterns uh, around Russia, Um, drop, indirect exports and then some trade being um, intermediated by Central Asia, some Caucasus countries. We see Turkey and China stepping in and taking advantage of opportunity. And then the third trend is exactly the box that you mentioned is change in the patterns in what currencies are used to invoice trade. And that box is in particular looking at Russian imports from the world. Russia is subject to sanctions, processing transactions in dollars is difficult. So while a decade ago 10% of Chinese exports to Russia were invoiced in renminbi, now it's two thirds. Moreover, we see UAE, India, and Turkey starting to invoice exports to Russia in their own currencies, the shares are still small, but the trend is visible in the data. And what's particularly striking, and that links it to this Brexit debate, is that we see third countries um, using renminbi as their currency of choice when exporting to Russia. And these are in particular countries that are not Um, aligned with Western sanctions. Um, These are countries that have swap lines with China and this trend is in particular taking off after the war started. So one possible interpretation is that while sanctions, while the dominance of the US dollar made sanctions much more effective, it created incentives for countries to look at other currencies and in the long term, <coughs> sanctions may, do- may undermine the dominance of the US dollar.
0: Okay, thank you. It looks like the dollar group's about to get another recruit in Latin America as well after elections last weekend. Uh, right, let's uh, move on to an online question, uh, quite an interesting one It follows up from something that Charlotte has said about no rear view mirror anymore. It says, uh, the question is, if we can't look back anymore, how do we get a credible baseline to compare our performance in the green transition against uh, that? Uh, what, what do we have to, to measure it against, and avoid the potential of greenwashing? Uh, so, you know, as <laughs> an interesting, who would like to have a crack at that? Uh, Charlotte, Charlotte, so maybe you want to have a first crack at that? <laughs>
3: okay. I will have a first try. Yeah, I think the, from an internal order perspective, I have to say the, the most common question we ask ourselves are the prerequisites there for us to be successful. And if not, we know that there is something wrong. And But if the prerequisites are there, we don't really know if we're going to get to the ambition anyway. But we have to start somewhere. So that will be my, my beginning of that answer.
0: Anybody else like to comment on the lack of a rear view mirror? Sandra? <coughs> uh,
4: yes, I would say that there has been a plethora of reporting, sustainability reporting, that is really only just starting to you know, crystallise for you know, across across the globe, really, um, and that's that's going to be really helpful. So I think we're going to have we're maybe in a lacuna now. That will clarify, right? And I think the next the next sort of round of annual reports um, are going to be a lot better than the previous ones. Audit firms are getting their heads around <laughs> how to help companies do this, but at the moment, um, you know, it's just a completely different way of, of looking at. Um, at risk actually and, and it's putting some structure around that so uh, it, it is new and this, we're currently in the baseline um, establishing process I would say.
0: I love the word lacuna. Thank you very much for using it. I always enjoy that word. Uh, right, uh, Mark, uh, what do you think? The OECD are probably you know, looking quite heavily about the need to have something to base future decisions on if, if, you, if the past is not always a reliable guide do you say?
5: Well, I think I just want to say that you know, we shouldn't forget that we have existing instruments already to deal with some of the issues we're facing. Trying to get sort of, we've had this whole process of the digital revolution that's been going on for sort of decades now. Uh, we've had previous ep- episodes of, of you know, industrial revolutions that have really sort of completely changed the way we do jobs, the sorts of jobs we do. So I think we can look back at what was successful and what worked in actually facilitating uh, those transitions. Now, of course... We know to some extent what works. We need better sort of public employment services. We need better training uh, opportunities. Uh, And uh, I think lastly, we also need to look carefully at sort of regional development because we've really got to get those communities on board uh, because it's not just about shipping everybody out of one one region that's in decline and, and getting them to move somewhere else. We know that that's painful and difficult. Um, and so we need to look at how can we have sort of renewal in those areas by setting up uh, new businesses, not just in green jobs, but in non-brown jobs uh, more, more generally, non-brown activities. So I think the problem is we know what works, we, but sometimes there's just a lack of that political will to do it. The other thing we haven't talked much about is, again, that has an impact on people is in terms of dealing with the potentially regressive impacts Mm -hmm. uh, of some climate mitigation policies that are needed But we see that people are very reluctant to embrace higher energy prices because that does hit their wallets and particularly for poorer households can really uh, mean uh, hardship for them. Particularly in countries where they have to rely on their cars, there's no public transport and so you raise petrol prices, uh, that has a big impact uh, on them. So if we're going to win their hearts and minds, we're going to do a better job on helping those that face uh, job losses uh, find new jobs, but take care of these uh, potentially regressive uh, impacts uh, on income. The good news is that the studies that we've looked at, the work we've done ourselves, says sometimes that regressive impact is actually overstated. It seems so obvious it's going to be regressive, but it's not actually the case. energy consumption sort of varies across the the board in terms of household uh, income. And so it really depends on which energy prices are are rising. The other thing is governments again can do something about that and they need to do something about it. So if they recycle those revenues from sort of uh, higher uh, energy taxes back into say lump sum payments or reduction in taxes across the board, they can offset that regressive uh, impact. But again, we have to do it carefully because we do not want to subsidize energy Mm -hmm. consumption because we're going then totally against what we're trying to achieve uh, with those energy taxes. So we have to do it uh, cleverly. But we need to keep people on board. And just the last point, if I may make on that, which is we also see that in terms of these revolutions, we've got the AI revolution, which is also having an impact on people's jobs and on the quality of those jobs both with green innovations and and trying to green uh, our jobs, uh, our businesses and our economies, similarly with the adoption of AI, which has the potential also to make us more productive and get rid of some of those tedious or dreary jobs. If they're done with strong sort of partnership between employers and trade unions, particularly at the firm level, they have much more chance of being adopted and implemented and getting the support of workers and actually taking care of some of their concerns. So we need to strengthen social dialogue across the board, particularly in EBRD countries, but also in very many, uh, the majority of OECD countries. And that's an important way, again, of getting social acceptance uh, of these changes.
0: Thank you, Mark. Biasa.
2: Mark mentioned regressive impact of green policies and he mentioned um, impact of petrol prices and usage of public transport. Um, We have a fascinating chapter on housing. We actually haven't talked much about it, but one of the things it shows is that poorer households tend to live further away from access to Mm -hmm. public transport. Right. So, you know, if we, are going to see higher taxes on petrol, or you know if poorer households may find it harder to purchase electric cars because of their prices, we need to ensure that they have access to, to public to public transport
0: Thank you very much, dB okay, another question from here in the hall. Uh, Barbara, you had your hands up. I think uh, just shortly we 'll get you a microphone. Gentleman coming towards you now.
8: Thank you you very much. Um, My name is Barbara Ramoser. I'm the Director for Gender and Equality for Opportunity at EBRD. One quick, well, two quick questions. One is you talked a lot about green jobs, grey jobs, etc. But of course there are shades of green and grey, Um, and there are greening jobs, as the ILO would, for example, say. So can you just tell us a bit more about the nuances there? And we've heard also from other speakers. um, In the automotive sector, you have greening jobs. So again, they require different kinds of skills. and then the, my second point was uh, in terms of operationalizing. We've heard a lot about policy action that is required. But, of course, I think employers also have a big role to play because they need the skills, they need the human capital in order to make those transitions within whichever sector they are in. And it would be really interesting to hear um, on, on the plans in, in relation to that as well and, and sort of how these things are viewed from the private sector point of view.
0: All right. There's going to be a number of answers. Uh, who would like to go first on our panel?
8: Should I take the second
4: one Go on, first? Um, I think I'm probably dressed for representing the brown. You know, th- th- I mean, that's the that's the irony, right? That we, you know, the mining sector is inherently brown. Hmm. Never going to be anything other than brown. There are green ways of doing it, but it's inherently brown. The other challenge is it is for sure the most male One of the most male dominated sectors out there. Uh, including there being legislation in a lot of these jurisdictions that, that bans, for example, underground mining by women. Um, so we cannot employ women to go underground. Now, an underground mine has a much smaller footprint, and so that is mm. a greener way of conducting mining operations. So you, and similarly with the with the environmental issue, but, um, you know, it, it is really, it's quite tough to, to get, you know, female, Highly skilled workers, or in our case, you know, on the ground, underground workers uh, into the sector. So you, you've got a real challenge to start off with. And I, I think, Mark, you mentioned it, getting uh, females interested in the STEM sectors, which is what the green transition requires, uh, and the digital transition, to be honest. Um, you know, it needs to start, we know, as an industry, at primary school level. And it's a very tiny percentage of girls that are interested. So we, we are now spending a lot of time going to schools, you know, and trying to make this sound, you know, exciting as a career proposition. Now, the challenge is, having been down an underground mine, it's not very nice, mm. you know? I, I mean, that's the fundamental challenge, how uh, it's not nice for boys or girls. So, you know, how do you kind of make that sound appealing? Um, I think piping music through mine might be a good idea. But <laughs> that's yet to take off. Um, but yeah, it, it's, I'm not
0: sure if that answers the question, but that's um, a few points that- maybe, maybe that old R&B song, working in a coal mine, that must be the one, right. Uh, Mark.
5: I talk about definitions, because that was actually a point I wanted to make, that you know, there is no sort of universally accepted definition of, of what's a green jo- job, what's a, a brown job. And I think we're all struggling with that. And I was going to say that it's actually, I think, one area where we need greater collaboration across our different international organizations. And in fact, the OECD and the ILO were asked together by the G7 countries to come up with sort of a, a common definition. I think we we have the ILO International Labour Conference of Statisticians uh, definition, which is sort of all jobs in, in environmental activities, and they sort of uh, they define environmental activities quite quite large. Uh, that's a good starting point, but it doesn't help us much with with the, the measurement uh, issues. So, lots of people have gone with the U.S. sort of uh, what's called the O*NET system, which looks at uh, maps, skill requirements, knowledge, and abilities to occupations at an incredibly detailed level. And then they looked at um, what are some sort of green tasks that are being performed and they did this classification where they sort of defined green tasks that are being performed in new occupations. They also looked at the greening of of some sort of task and therefore uh, some change that would be required in occupations in terms of the tasks that they performed. So potentially some occupation would, would be becoming more green. So, And then lastly you had a group of occupations where just because of the needs more generally of going towards a green transition, that would increase the demand for these occupations. And you needed these occupations to, to actually facilitate that, that green transition. But again, different organizations have implemented that in different ways. They get different measures of the incidence of of, um, green jobs ranging from 5% on average across countries to 20 or 25%. And I think this really hinders our interpretation uh, of of, uh, what are the policy responses that that we need. Similarly for brown jobs, brown jobs are a bit easier. We tend to just look at um, by industry we either classify all jobs in an industry that's sort of high polluting as brown, or we look across the board about occupations that tend to be concentrated in those industries, and then we just focus on those occupations. But again, uh, differences across countries. The grey jobs, of course, are the ones that are neither brown nor green. And again, you've got, and, and I shouldn't forget that important point that you raised, Barbara, is about you've got intensity. So. Some jobs are just neither, you can't say they're binary, they're green or they're brown, and that's it. You've got a lot of jobs that have green shades to them and brown shades to them uh, as well. So that's what really makes that complicated. Lastly, just to say on sort of, I think your point is right about, we're not just talking about skills of workers, we also have to talk about the skills of employers. And particularly when we look in small and medium enterprises, we need... To improve their management skills. You know, how do they manage these changes in their uh, in the new technologies and the processes that they need to move to more uh, greener way of doing things? How do they manage the sort of the skill needs that arise that uh, from that and organize training? And it's the same issues with the adoption of AI. If they want to be more productive, again, managing that requires substantial skills. And we see some countries are focusing on that, like Australia and the UK, they've actually developed uh, special programs to educate uh, the managers and the owners of small and medium uh, enterprise to improve their skills.
0: Mark, thank you very much. We had so many audience questions, we're not gonna uh, get through. Uh, Time's winger chariot is getting away from us as, uh, to destroy Shakespeare, if I might uh, do that. But let's uh, have some final thoughts, and very, very briefly. Perhaps I could ask each of you on the panel as we wrap up, you know, for one key recommendation you might make to business and the public and the private sector to make sure that the, the green transition really continues to take flight uh, and takes place across the board. Uh, Charlotte, maybe I'll come to you first.
3: Yeah, I'll start with a, a business idea. If you look at the batteries, you can always, re- you can repair, you can reuse, and you can recycle batteries, but you can also repurpose batteries. They can have other use than just being in a car again. And I think that's a business opportunity.
0: Sandra.
4: I would say uh, be bold and take risk in jurisdictions, you know, far and wide.
0: It's my philosophy in life. Thank you very much indeed. Mark. (coughs)
5: Just I think to repeat what uh, Beata said, we've really got to win the hearts and minds of people to ensure that there is strong public support behind climate mitigation policies, but that means taking care effectively of their concerns about job loss or income losses uh, as a result of the transition.
0: Beata.
2: We want to encourage girls to move into STEM professions, but equally we want to encourage men to move into heel profession, health, education, administration, and we talk about this in the report as well.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you to our four members of the panel. Thank you to all of you in the audience as well, both here uh, physically in the building and also online for being part of this exciting event. You can download the full transition report or read it online at uh, 2024.tr-ebrd.com. Uh, and you can see on the screen behind me, I would hope, uh, somewhere, yes, there it is. If you're in the room, you can see where you find it just there. Uh, We're going to be posting a podcast of today's session later. You can download it on iTunes. Reviewing and rating it, of course, helps others to find us. Uh, I'm Jonathan Charles. Thank you. Goodbye.